You're listening to The LaunchCast, the podcast about leadership, business, life, and growth with me, your host, George Andriopoulos. It's like food for your ears. At this time, I'm going to ask that you fasten your seatbelts. Launch sequence. Launch sequence activated. Launch sequence activated. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to the LaunchCast. God damn it, I love this music. Woo, chills. It's been a week and I missed you guys. Episode 111, Documentary, my dear Watson. That's a good title, my friends. It's the Launch Dad himself, George Andriopoulos, bringing you your favorite podcast on the planet. And we have got a good one today. We're talking some good stuff. Oh, I don't want to talk over this part of the music, but I have to. We're bringing you the podcast about leadership, business, life, and growth. And we're bringing it to you. Hey, Fabrizio, why are we bringing him this podcast? That's right, buddy, because it's my show and I'll talk about whatever I want to here. With us today, we have... An incredible guest, and I'm so happy to have this man on. Let me get him on camera here. There he is. Look at that beautiful face. <laughs> we have Ben Duffy, an incredible human being who I was just introduced to recently, and I'm going to give the bio in a minute, but Ben, thanks for being here, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Got to tell you, I love the, I love the mustache, by the way. Uh, killing it <laughs> and and by the way guys and we don't do the the kitschy bullshit here but it is valentine's day so this is a this is a great episode today for valentine's day because we're going to be talking about a dec- uh, documentary that has a lot to do with love we'll get into that later and plus i wore my yoda one for me shirt today which my wife gave me early yeah. this morning very happy about that so uh here we go with the bio guys Ben Duffy started as a junior making skate videos with his best friends on driveways and now is a filmmaker with 10 documentaries under his belt, four of which are features redefining the meaning of micro-budget filmmaking. We Are Skateboarders, Ben's most acclaimed published film, became the second highest viewed feature-length skateboard doc for the price of what could have cost the average production almost a million dollars. Uh, He continued to diversify and tap into the world of the underdogs, the community of people who are never fully seen or fully heard. Using only crowdfunding campaigns as a financial source to carry him through, Ben created Amazon Prime feature documentaries on autism and the world of disabled people as professional athletes. His most recent doc, Take a Look at This Heart, is the film he wants to be remembered for because it is the most unique film on his resume to date. Always looking for the next big project through inspiration, Ben is now working on I Do Not Blame Myself, a docu-series that focuses on mental illness. Ever-changing and always evolving, Ben looks to continuously collaborate on new ideas and is always open to work on projects that fuel his creativity and his soul. Dude, uh, I'm, I'm like uber impressed, mainly because I actually watched... Uh, one of your documentaries, take a look at this heart yesterday. And it was 
fucking incredible. I, I can't say enough about it. Insane. So um, I'm going to start this off the, the way we always start this off, and then we'll get into the conversation. We talked a little bit about this yesterday, but Ben, are you a leader? I feel like in a lot of respects, I am, but I, I'll tell you, I'll tell the audience exactly what I told you yesterday. I do have some insecurities about the whole leadership role because I am so sort of, you know, the ongoing struggle continues every day. But as far as an independent documentary producer, I feel like, yeah, my leadership is incredibly strong. I, I tend to pull something from within me to produce something out of nothing. And I continue to do that. And I'm, I'm very proud of that. And I think that makes me a leader. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you should be incredibly proud. Talk to me a little more about that. What is your definition of a leader? My definition of a leader would be somebody who kind of what I just said, pulls something from within them that they didn't know was already there in order to achieve success for themselves, whatever that success may be. Um, whether it's achieving uh, the ability to have empathy. I think empathy as a human being and as a business person is incredibly important. So I think that's a huge aspect of leadership. Um, I think that, um, as my grandfather says, like, you know, being in a healthy relationship is far better than, you know, not being in one at all. And I think that takes leadership too, to take control of your own life and to, lead somebody else's into a place of unconditional love. I think that's incredibly beautiful. And these are the things that I now at 30 look for the most in my most humbled self is empathy and, and unconditional love for whether it's my girlfriend or my father or my friends or really are somebody like homeless on the streets that like, if I have $12 to my name, I want to give them a dollar because I know that at the end of the day, I could always recoup, but they might not be able to. That's empathy to me, and that's leadership in a, in a nutshell to me. <clears throat> it, 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 it's really a mouthful what you just said in terms of uh, how much you packed into leadership. Uh, I think that for me, the biggest theme there is is the empathy part. Empathy as leaders really puts us in a different position. It's a, a lot of the, the whole servant leadership role has a lot to do with empathy. And as I look at you as a young man who's really coming into your own and I see that empathy in your work and your art form, I really do see you in that servant leadership role. I have a lot of colleagues that, that really look at coaching and psychology in a different way. And uh, one, one colleague in particular, Mark Cordone, and I always talk about leadership and the different facets of leadership you can have. And that, that servant leadership specifically, that, that need to, to help people and, and, in different ways, right? You're doing it in a way where you're getting out there and you're you're speaking, you're helping people find their voice. You're speaking on behalf of of other communities that we may not necessarily see. It's huge. And, and you and I spoke privately yesterday in our, our little pre-interview where we met, but you specifically uh, said something that really popped out at me, and it was that you were not super comfortable calling yourself a leader because you still struggle in so many ways. And then for me, it's like, isn't that really the definition of a leader? How can you be a leader without actually having that struggle that the rest of us have? 
how can you how can you be in a leadership role if you don't understand on an ongoing basis? It's not the person that struggled 30 years ago and succeeded and now has been preaching leadership for 30 years. It's that person that's sort of in that struggle. That that's how I look at myself. I'm still in that struggle with all the other business owners out there, all the other people that are trying to do good in the world. I'm still finding my way with that. And so you being in that struggle still and not having perfected it, that's the beauty of leadership to me. You know, so I really I applaud you for everything you do, man, which we'll we'll get into all of it. But you're on you're on your way, dude. <laughs> I'm telling you, you're on your way. It's a lot. Yeah. So so let's talk about the journey since since you're on your way. Talk to me about growing up, man. What was life like for Ben growing up? So starting from like which age? Give me a ballpark so I know. Any the, I, I guess we'll what we try and do here is we try and pinpoint these spark moments in life. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, these spark moments, what they mean in terms of leadership is it's these pivotal moments, something where you look back on and it mattered throughout the course of your life and it really helped to, to, to guide you to where you are. So I guess pinpoint these, these spark leadership moments or spark moments, I should say. Well, the first thing that comes to mind, and I guess I'm getting deep at uh, 9, 10 California time, is, uh, you know, when I was like seven years old, um, my mom, uh, she has uh, anterior horn cell disease, which is a disease that ran through her spine and left her hands basically. I mean, they were paralyzed. She's had 18 hand surgeries and she's done a lot of energetic healing and stuff like that. But, you know, I would, uh, like I would like, you know, at a young age, like caress her hands to make her feel better. And like, I'd be at the grocery store and like, she'd be struggling to pick up the change that the cashier dropped and the cashier would be like, okay, hurry up, you know, and then in their mind and like, I could see it on their face and I would help her to pick it up. And I just remember being so angry at, um, the lack of empathy that I guess at a young age, given what I saw and given my mom's condition, I, I, gained a profound sense of empathy not to say profound in like a not a humble way it's no, just I get it. that's how it felt to me and um that was like i i just remember that one time at the grocery store being them still to this day at 30 years old being the most one of the most defining moments of my life just totally understanding that empathy needs to be a two-way street you know and um and the love of my life my mom you know at the time at least when I was younger, um, was just struggling so much in so many ways. And I just kind of had to be there for her. So, I mean, that, that was like, that was my early life, you know? And then it only makes sense that like, as I grew older, you know, skateboarding, when I found skateboarding at 13, um, hope I'm not like getting too deep or off track here. There's nothing too deep for this show, my friend. (laughs) I'm on the right show then because I'm a deep guy. Um, You know, my dad had kind of left the picture when I was 13 and he came back eight years later and he is my best fucking friend in the world to this day. Him and my girlfriend are my best friends. And, um, but, uh, you know, I lost a father and gained a skateboard for sure, you know? And, uh, that skateboard, it just, it not only on surface level, it gave me, you know, over the years, 10 million friends. And, uh, but it gave me a sense of like living a life with passion, you know, how to live a life with passion, caring about something so much that it 
literally hurts, literally and metaphorically hurts, you know, because, you know, skateboarding is a painful activity to do. Um, some people would even say it's like a form of masochism, but uh-huh. um, I don't know. Skateboarding transitioned me into the world of professional skateboarders. So just being a 13-year-old, you know, fucking going home after school and skating in the 20-degree weather is my only two friends <clears throat> to uh, to moving to California after one year of school, dropping out, angry as all hell, young and high strung, and saying, I'm going to make a fucking skateboarding documentary that's going to get sold all over the world if it's the last thing I do on this planet. <clears throat> and I did that. Um, and today, like you said on the on before, you know, it has like 750,000 views on YouTube, and I haven't seen a penny from that, but I know that in my heart, the 19-year-old in me, going back to how you said, talk about your younger days, the 19-year-old in me just wanted to make a film that was seen. So, right. you know, I got my mom at a young age, my dad leaving me, and I got finding of skateboarding. Uh, my whole life, from a young age to now, I feel like has been filling that void. And so to fill that void, I've made films that are cathartic to me, which I in return, hope that are cathartic to other people. So I think that sums up my younger days and how that's transitioned into the man I am now. You know, when we sort of pinpoint uh, the community that we represent, you know, as a youth or, or as an adult, uh, it really helps to to build us into into who we're going to be uh, eventually. You know, you're, you're 30 now, man. You're about to, if you think that zero to 30 was a journey, 30 to 40 is fucking insane. It's, uh, I just, I just turned 40 a couple of months ago, man. And I've had, for me, I've had the biggest growth in my life in those 10 years. Uh, I talk about this all the time at ad nauseum, but I was not anywhere close to this dude that you see right now. I was out of control. I was, um, you know, all I cared about was money and success and, and wealth and this and that. And, uh, it, it brought me to a, to a dark place in a lot of different ways. And so, finding that medium, finding that art form. And for me, that medium was just being a change maker, right? I kind of realized that the business that I was so obsessed with for the first 10 or so years of my career wasn't about the business part. It was that I loved creating change within business. And so I found that art form for me, and it's led to a ridiculous um, amount of like outbranching into so many different things, you know, whether it's my businesses, this podcast, public speaking. Uh, and so the maturity that came with 30 to 40, that's yeah. what helped usher in this golden age for me. So it's kind of cool, you know, when I look back seeing that and seeing other people that are just about to embark on those really pivotal 10 years. Um, I'm excited for you, man. Well, let's hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I can't, there's only so much uh, I can handle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll go um, so, so you talked about um, how you got into filmmaking in terms of why. Mm. How did it actually happen? Like, I mean, the, the mechanism of you being a kid or, or, you know, whatever age it was, and you officially made the decision, I'm going to make a film. I'm going to become a filmmaker. Um, well, my, one of my best friends, Mike G., um, he got for Christmas or his birthday. Um, yeah, he got, um, Adobe premiere, which is an editing software. 
and um, he got a 3CC chip camera. And uh, he, uh, yeah, I was at my new house, and uh, like my mom's, where my mom moved. Um, and uh, man, we're going way back. Um, yeah, and uh, he knocked on my door and basically said, hey, you want to try anything but like <laughs> what you already know? You know, all I knew was basketball. And uh, he introduced me to snowboarding, scooter, biking, uh, skateboarding. And then within about two to three weeks, it just was a matter of skateboarding and snowboarding. So when he got that camera and he got that editing software three months after the camera, I was like, I don't know. It, it Seriously, like, it doesn't make any sense to me. I remember seeing Any Given Sunday, the, the Al Pacino, Oliver Stone movie when I was – 12 or something like that or 11 and I thought that it was the most miraculous like I knew there was something unimaginary about the editing in that movie something just clicked in me but I couldn't it was in my subconscious and then when I got this camera I had so much fun filming like I just it turned into like 13 years old like okay guys like man I hope my mom gives me a ride to the skate park today you know, whatever. But then it turned into like 17 years old, like screaming at my friends if they weren't ready to film after school, like right after school. Yeah. So I had this like burning desire in me to make a, make a video. And I would, I would, uh, go around, like I would make these, I made three feature length skateboarding videos within high school. And I would go around selling DVDs in school in my high school, which is pretty funny to me. And, uh, you know, make like five bucks a pop. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, maybe, maybe I don't give this enough credit, but my, my teacher, Mr. Yost, he was a social studies teacher. And I was like, Mr. Yost, like, you mind if I, instead of writing an essay, just, um, make a little short film. He was like, I guess I don't see anything wrong with that. And I made, and I did that for two of the replace, you know, replacing two essays yeah. in that year. And he, it was the highest grade I ever gotten on a anything in my whole schooling career. So like, I just, I guess I felt like if I can get myself out of despondency using film, uh, I'll do it. And, uh, yeah. And then, uh, 18 years old, I went to the school of visual arts and I, I guess from there, I just kind of, I got so much, um, in my in my own narcissistic self at that time, it felt like adulation. Yeah, and uh, I got so much adulation from my peers from my filmmaking and my teacher, like my teacher Manny Kirschheimer, who is uh, one of the most influential people in my whole life. Um, he was my professor there. You know, he later on told me he was like Duffy, like you are the most talented student I've ever seen in forty years of teaching here. And I mean, I, I wish he almost never said that to me at that age. Cause it was a little, it was a little bit much for my narcissistic brain, but, um, you know, you know, one, one morning it, I was supposed to take the final exam for that class and I slept in way too late and I showed up about 20 minutes for the class. And I was like, Manny, like, I'm so sorry. Like, what am I going to do? Can I take it? Like, I don't know. Can I take it right now? He's like, listen, your film was so good. Oh man, I shouldn't even put him on black. Oh, he's retired. Whatever. He was like, <laughs> your, your film was so good, and you worked so hard that I'm just gonna forget you didn't take this test and uh, give you a B plus for the class, which is like crazy because it was the final exam. So yeah. I probably should have gotten close to failing the class. 
so I don't know, like filmmaking has always just been like a representation of like how passion dictates how things really work in the real world. I feel like passion overrides everything. And I have, I am a lion-hearted, passion, passionate kind of person. And I can say that with sincerity. I see that. So there it is. I saw, I saw a great video. It's actually posted by the School of Visual Arts on their YouTube channel of mm. you and Manny Kirschheimer um, working on yeah. one of your projects. Um, whether that was sort of a, a setup video or not, or was it just really a snapshot uh, of life, it was yep. great because uh, first of all, I saw the love he had for you in terms of your your ability and your filmmaking. Like he was just, he seemed to be blown away by what you could do, and he had some great advice for you um, in that video. If you guys want to Google that, just just Google uh, Ben Duffy, and Manny Kirschheimer. Uh, it's on the SVA YouTube page. Great, great video. Um, so, speaking about that, right? You know, there's there's really when you blend passion and your professional life, you can create some really great stuff, some stuff that could really move the needle. And in a way, to do that in an effective way, to curate this art form, because it really is an art form, in an effective way, you sort of have to be an artist of sorts. Do you consider yourself an artist? Oh, boy. You know. Um, I, should say, I, I shouldn't say consider yourself. Do you feel like an artist is the real question. In a not so long, long form answer of this question, I look at Matthew McConaughey's performance in True Detective. It's the mood, the the film, the show is called True Detective, mm -hmm. and he's supposed to be this true detective, right? And I think he is to a T, and that's what makes his character so great. And I've always looked at him, and like, I always said to myself, like, that's the version of the director that I am. Like, I am a true artist, true director, you know. I mean, I can give a lot of reasons why I feel that way, but then the short answer, yes, I, I do feel that way. Yeah. It just, it just kind of skeeves me out to like call myself oh, a true artist, but I, that's pretty much the only thing I'd like to be called, like because I have worked so hard at, and I'm so unconventional in my thinking and my, my heart patterns and stuff like that, that where it leads me and stuff like that, that that's the only thing I could chalk it up to. Yeah, and that's why I reframed that question because considering yourself an artist versus feeling like an artist is two different things. I'm not talking about the adulation part of it, yeah. um, but feeling like an artist uh, really puts you in that position where you can create, you know, in a, in a really unique way, in a way that's unique to your specific experience in life and brain. Um, and I see that in your work. Um, I, we'll get into that a little bit later, but in terms of being an artist and in terms of creating you know when you think back across your whole life and i'm talking more your youth before you were a filmmaker do you think that people misunderstood you well i had you know i was uh diagnosed with adhd very very early on and i was put on uh either adderall or ritalin i'm not sure what came first but uh i feel like i was heavily misunderstood actually that's a really interesting question you're you're, you're tapping into some really interesting stuff that I've never heard anybody ever ask me. And I've done a thousand interviews in my life. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, when Jackass, the show came out, right. I started jumping into bushes just to make people laugh. You know, I feel like, cause I was so inspired by being a class clown and stuff like that, you know? And I feel like that stems from like an insecurity of like, 
nobody fucking understands me. Like I'm just some like weird looking pale kid with huge ears and a bad haircut. Like, and no girls like me. And I just like, I'm just so sick of the bullshit with my parents. And like, I just want to be understood. So yeah, when he, when you, when you have examples like finding a skateboard or a teacher letting you make a video instead of writing an essay, you start to feel more understood. But yeah, man, I mean, you know, what kid that gets put on Ritalin or Adderall at fucking 11 or 12 does feel understood. You know, you feel the complete opposite of that. Yeah. Um, you feel like it's like an identity crisis at 12, <laughs> you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, I, I hear where you're coming from, man. And it's, it's powerful. And when you look at sort of how you take that feeling that, you know, being misunderstood and carry that through to the person that you're going to become, it's, I find that kind of stuff so interesting in terms of what road that takes you down in life. And in terms of your professional work, in speaking with you, seeing uh, the themes in some of your films, you tend to represent the misunderstood. And I find that really cool. Maybe even the underheard. You know, for me, professionally, I don't know why I do what I do sometimes, man. You know, I had this this epiphany in my life almost 10 years ago where I really needed to change as a human being. I guess I didn't consciously say, hey, I need to do some good. I just started living the life that I should have always been living. And then that led me to some really cool stuff. It led me to some points where I could really do some some good in the world and, and make some change. And so I see that for you. You're representing the misunderstood and the underheard as sort of that uh, that thing that you're doing in your life, that, that thing you're passionate about. What is it, Ben, that you're trying to say while you're representing the misunderstood and, uh, and underheard? What are you actually trying to say? Are you trying to tell their stories? Is, is that just the calling that you're getting or are you trying to actually say something? Holy shit, man. <laughs> this uh, is the launch cast, my friend. <laughs> this ain't no bullshit interview show. <laughs> good george i'll give you that man i barely know you but you are really good at this man and i wouldn't be saying that to someone i didn't really know if i thank you man in it i appreciate um and i'm like dying to ask you questions too because i'm a director at heart so i'm always the one that's asking the questions um i'm here what am i trying to say um you know my film which i'm sure we'll talk about take a look at this heart it's such a cheesy way of explaining it, but it certainly means everything down to the core of what I'm trying to say. That title, Take a Look at This Heart. I think we live in a very image-based and very, 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 very cold, cold, nobody gives a fuck about you kind of world, except for your family. And as Chris Rock said it perfectly, even some of the people in your house don't even care about you as soon as you leave the door. Um, but, uh, you know, it's just like when you take a look at somebody's heart, I think that the most beautiful thing about that is that it gives them this sense of vulnerability where they can take a look at their own heart when they've been so concerned with their image and with their level of financial success and um, maybe even – and trying to be some sort of false leader in their own life. You know, like maybe be 
maybe it's like when you when they take a look at their own heart they're saying to themselves this isn't and it's kind of similar to how you sounded at 30 what you're saying is like this isn't exactly what i had pictured you know not in my mind but in my heart you know and so i guess what i'm just trying to say with these films is like let's take a look at the heart of of life and ourselves and how we fit in this life and and where we want to go because i don't like life is really long actually like i'm 30 and i feel like i'm going on fucking 150 like i seriously like like life is so long to be living a life that's like unjust to you you know and and it sounds cheesy but it's like the one thing i can say for myself is that like i just at 13 i knew exactly what i wanted to be and I have never strayed away from that path for a day. Even when I worked at Ralph's, the grocery store on Hollywood Boulevard, I quit after two days because I was like, it's, I have so much respect for the people who work here. It's nothing to do with that. I, I commend them. My brain can't function in an environment like that and I wish I could because I need to make some money quick. But instead of that and doing that, I quit and I went home to my friend Jason's because I was pretty much homeless or couch surfing, whatever you want to call it, without a home. And I said to myself, I started crying on the couch by myself because I was like, what, you're a filmmaker, Ben, and like, you know, you can make an Indiegogo, a GoFund, uh, a, like whatever, a GoFundMe, and raise some money and just get back on the right track. Like, you know how to do this. You've done it before. Why are you succumbing to the evils of like, your brain when you should be listening to your heart and I just I want people to find to pull something from within themselves that they didn't know that they had to find love that's been missing from themselves for so long in order to heal as a person that's what my that's what I'm trying to say through my films yeah. sorry I'm always going to be long-winded it's no it's hey man you're talking to Mr. Long-Winded here it's all good um I, I love that explanation man um and you covered quite a few things that I, I wanted to cover, so that's great. Good. It'll help to streamline this. We're going to get into a little bit later how this has sort of affected you, the work that you do on a day-to-day basis, because it's it's tough, man. It's powerful. So I really want to get into that conversation a little bit later. Ben, I want to real quick play the the trailer for Take a Look at This Heart. We're going to get into talking about that later. But, guys, it's such an incredible, incredible film you really need to check this out i'm going to play it now so you guys can uh get a little idea of what this this trailer is about it's about three or four minutes long so ben hang tight for a minute while i play this all right i've never had this before i remember getting like a bunch of compliments say from guys like oh you're like you're so beautiful but that was it because i think that's what goes through most people's minds oh she's in a whale she can't have sex just go at it. I, I've never had somebody like just stop in the middle of sex and be like, this is fucking weird. Like, and just leave. Like, it's, it's never happened to me. Being a quadriplegic doesn't stop me. Just being paralyzed doesn't stop me from being in a relationship or being physical or making love or anything like that if I'm with the right person. Because if I'm with the right person, I don't feel like I'm paralyzed. I get this feeling from my head to toe. 
I see it to be a little more difficult to find love. Patience, and in due time, it might fall into place. And when it does, I think it's like two stars colliding. To other people who haven't dabbled into looking at people past their physical features, yeah, there's no question about it. I'm dating a girl in a wheelchair. I'm in a relationship with an amazing woman who happens to be in a chair. very self-conscious after my accident because my legs shrank. I didn't have a nice butt. I put myself in a chair online because that's who I am. Profiles, a lot of them say under six foot, swipe left. I'm fucking like four three. That isn't even close. I was always saying in the back of my mind, I wonder if I'm ever gonna get married. All of a sudden, I knew I had to be with him the rest of my life and I was positive. You know? Hi. <laughs> Aww. You know, I'm 34 years old, and I have yet to have a romantic relationship. I have my moments of like, fuck, this is too much for somebody. But that doesn't have to be colored by the lens of like, because I'm in a wheelchair. I was not in a wheelchair. I was in high heels. And I like the high heels thing. And I like running, walking, dancing. I think I'll never accept this. Wow, so incredible. Uh, guys, I watched this last night. By the way, it's available on Amazon Prime, as are, uh, I think, like four of Ben's documentaries. Um, I could be wrong. I think, take a look at this heart. Uh, heart Child, We Are Skateboarders, and either Tin Soldiers. Tin Soldiers, yeah, are available on Amazon Prime. So check them out, guys. Um, so incredible. Or they're available for purchase on iTunes as well. The LaunchCast is sponsored today by the Leadership Experience, a coaching masterclass. Intentional, unconventional, thoughtful leadership from keynote speaker, CEO, nonprofit board member, and TEDx executive producer, George Andriopoulos. Hey, that's me. Guys, the music's getting louder, which either means that this is a can't-miss epic course or that Fabrizio fell asleep at the controls again. Registration opens on February 1st, and we are beginning on March 1st. This music is so damn loud, and that means it's going to be amazing. And Fabrizio's pay is definitely getting docked this week. Join us, the Leadership EXP, for details. You don't want to miss this. So I want to move on to actually talk about your films themselves and really the process of the films. Because for me, I, I'm, I'm such a hobbyist in terms of, I don't want to say filmmaking. I love editing. I love doing creative projects. You talked before about how you had asked your teacher if you could submit a video instead of an essay. 
that jumped out at me because that's that's me. That's what I do. I always have my muse of the year or of the day or whatever it is. And I love being creative. And so a couple of years ago, you know, for those of you that don't know, I own a, a company called Launchpad 516, which is a, a management consulting firm. And we also have a marketing agency within. And so we're doing pitches all the time. We're doing proposals for companies. And so when when somebody puts out a request for a proposal and they're getting, you know, a bunch of like PDF documents from everybody with a, you know, a written proposal and here's your price list and everything. And then they get a video from my company. That's unique. That's something that jumps out at them because people are more engaged with video. Right. And so when you said that you did that in your class, that really jumped out at me because I, I do that all the time. Um, the, the process of how you got into filmmaking uh, in terms of making your films is so interesting to me because I'm a hobbyist. Uh, your most acclaimed documentary is We Are Skateboarders. And I've seen elements of skateboarding in some of your other docs like Heart Child, right? Um, so did for you um, in, in getting that message out, right? Because I know that when something is such a big part of your life as skateboarding was for you, when you were uh, younger, did filmmaking technically for you start with skateboarding or was it vice versa? A hundred thousand percent started with skateboarding. Yeah. I, if I if I never got into skateboarding, I doubt I would have ever gotten into filmmaking because I, I mean, I, I have no way of knowing. I can't prove what would have happened, but because skateboarding led me to a camera, um, yeah, I mean, what what else could I assume then? You know, that if that if it wasn't that exact road, then then it could have been something else. But to me, it's like there will be no other way. There's no other way for me. Like I just skateboarding and filmmaking are are you know the unconventional loves in my life. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about we are skateboarders. So uh, I'll give the synopsis of the. The doc itself. So We Are Skateboarders is a is a as real as it gets documentation of the soul of skateboarding and how some of the legendary skateboarders feel its soul has changed over the years. Since its mainstream has since the mainstream has come to play a major role in the skateboard industry, there's been much dispute amongst skateboarders if skateboarding is losing its purity and status as a core activity. The film tackles the issue with enlightening interviews from famous skateboarders such as Lance Mountain, Greg Lutzka, uh, Rob Deerdeck, Peter Smolik, and Christian, Ho how do you say that, Hozoi? Sorry. Yeah, creating the most legitimate discussion towards the controversy in skateboarding in the skateboarding industry, shot in Los Angeles and New York City. Uh, I watched all of the trailers that you have for this and some clips that were on YouTube, and like I said, I'm gonna catch the whole film over the weekend. It's a it's a unique take because skateboarding for you was such a pure thing when you were a kid, right? And so once you once you immerse yourself in an activity and and become obsessed with it, because that's how I am. When I do something, I really get obsessive about it and I want to learn everything about it. And then you start seeing the other side of it, right? The commercial side, the impure side. Uh, that had an effect on you, huh? Well, it certainly had an effect on uh, skateboarding the industry, which has an effect on every skater, whether they know it or not. But, um, when I skateboarding, like you said, 
like you, you pretty much put words in my mouth. It was the most pure thing for me. And uh, it was an incredibly sentimental thing and it was this and that. So when I moved to LA and I, um, I'll, try to, I'll try to tell you this whole story in three sentences. The, the guy, Larry Stevenson, who patented the kicktail of the skateboard. So before him, skateboards were just flat. Wow. Now they have the two kicktails at the front and the nose, the nose and the tail, they're called. Um, he patented that and started the first skate team ever. So his son, Kurt Stevenson, who's a dear friend of mine to this day, when I was 19, rolled up on me when I was filming an amazing skateboarding trick. And he showed me a, like a copy of Transworld magazine, which had his, an article about his dad. And he's like, listen, man, I need someone to help me bring back my dad's magazine, which is called Power Edge magazine. So I got into Power Edge magazine and I became somehow the worst senior editor of a magazine that was distributed in like Barnes and Nobles. It was crazy. And I was like, getting this firsthand mouthful of like what the industry was really like. And then I met my, like someone who's like a brother to me, Dane Brummett. He was a professional skateboarder and he, he was almost retired by the time that I met him, but he was pretty jaded by the skateboarding industry because it kind of, he was so successful and then it kind of chewed him out like it does for most people. And, uh, he let me know, like he put her both, both working for the magazine and working for, I mean, being Dane's friend, really put a terrible taste in my mouth about what they, what skateboarding was really like. And um, when Nike and Mountain Dew and Red Bull and Adidas and New Balance and fucking the list goes on, I think what happened was when they first got into it, Gatorade, when they first got into it, they were like making skateboarding look like it was a fucking monkey dance, dance monkey dance project. You know, it was horrendous. Yeah. Not everybody fucked up, but like a lot of companies really blew it. And so what was happening and the reason why I made the documentary um, was that a lot of professional skateboarders were getting these huge contracts to, to dance monkey dance. And, um, you know, they were making skateboarding look terrible. They were making themselves look terrible. And a lot of the other dudes that were not doing those things and not getting those checks created a lot of jealousy and animosity within the skateboarding industry. So essentially I made a documentary where I talked to anywhere from a kid on the street that, that just got his first skateboard to like Lance Mountain or Rob Dyrdek or some of the most famous, you know, um, some of the most famous skateboarders of all time. And I pretty much asked them like, what does the soul of skateboarding mean to you? And then we transitioned into like, you know, now that like, you know, Lance, like Ryan Checkler being the most, he's like the hot boy of skateboarding, literally and metaphorically speaking, he's making all this money from Red Bull and all these, all these companies. Um, how do you feel about his success and what he's doing in skateboarding with his reality TV show and everything? And Lance pretty much said, dude, if it wasn't for money, like growing, Lance is probably in his fifties or maybe even, I don't want to, this yeah, or anything. Yeah. I don't know, maybe he's 60. He was like, if, if around my time, the Tony Hawk generation, the Lance mountain generation, the Rob Deere, um, uh, Christian Asoy, Mark Gonzalez, if money, if Stacy Peralta never spotlighted us with money, nobody would have ever seen us. 
we would have never gotten any exposure because let's face it, money goes into magazines. It takes a magazine to, I mean, it takes money to make a magazine and magazines were all skateboarding was back then. You know, I mean, thank God for Stacey Peralta to make skateboarding videos, but it's just, he just said it so eloquently. Like it's, it's just money had equal exposure. And, uh, you know, I think the problem was, is that back then they did it really right. Like Stacey Peralta had great taste. Stacey Peralta, for all of those, all those you don't know, is the director of Lords of Dogtown and Dogtown and the Z-Boys. Actually, he didn't direct the movie, but he directed the documentary and uh, the Bones Brigade autobiography. Um, and uh, he, he put – he found Tony Hawk. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's what that documentary is about in a nutshell. Like the soul skateboarding transitioning to – what skateboarding is like without that soul and how does it make skateboarders feel? And it turned out to be a really raw demonstration of the hearts and minds of skateboarders, professional skateboarders. Yeah. You know, it's funny uh, uh, in speaking about the commercialization of skateboarding and, and the money behind it. So you look at this issue and you think, I'm going to make a film about this. I want to make a documentary to really spotlight, you know, uh, shine a light on, on this issue and see what people really feel about it. Um, yet, you did this on like no budget, right? I read a, I read something online that said it was made from you riding on buses with expired weekly bus passes to getting to shoots, holding two skateboards, a big ass tripod and a heavy loaded camera bag. Uh, and let's not forget about the food stamp grocery bill for when the shoot was over. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting how much you struggled doing this. And then you put out a project that was, you know, in terms of hits and, and, and people's thoughts on it was, was successful, right? Um, but you're still hungry after it. So I, I guess my question here is, does the fact that you're still struggling keep you hungry? And, and does it keep you at the top of your creative game when making films? Wow. Um, it's such a hard I, – I almost like feel like the audience is, at, is expecting me to say yes. But the truth is is that – you know, like I said, I, I'm 30, feeling like I'm going on 150, and I am at the point right now where I'm feeling like I'm at the bottom. Like I'm a 30-year-old guy with bipolar disorder who doesn't have a penny to his name, and yet it's a lot like Searching for Sugar Man, the, the incredible Academy Award-winning documentary. Like I am completely unknown. I'm an unknown soldier, and. People are watching my movie every day on Amazon Prime. My movie's every day on Amazon Prime, and yet I'm still struggling so much. Fuck the financial part. I'm struggling with my mental health, and yeah. it sucks, man. And like, it's hard to bounce back financially when you have such immense struggles with your mental health. And uh, I have a lot of things that are helping me out. I'm 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 one year I'm one year and two months sober, um, which is really, you know, it's a life changing experience. Um, but. <sighs> Nah, man, I'm just jaded. Like, I just don't want to. Like, I got. I'm getting a call back today from a grocery store to stock shelves, and like, you know, uh, it's hard when a couple months ago I was just speaking in front of San Diego State University's Disability and Society class in front of 600 students, getting paid a thousand dollars to do it. You know, but it's all about cons leadership. A lot of leadership is consistency. And I guess that's the one part of my insecurity about leadership and my and the leadership role that I have for myself is that maybe I'm 
while I'm consistent with making films that move people from one place of emotion to the other, I'm not consistent. And this kind of goes for documentary producing in general. It's a lot of documentary producers faces, but I'm not consistent in like, okay, I finished a film. I got the money to make the next one. So my life is like, and not to mention when I'm making those films, I'm not doing anything else because I'm so lionhearted, passionate about making those films that I don't give a fuck about anything else in the world except for the people that I love. But I certainly don't care about any other in- sources of income because I, I, how could I do both? And I don't get paid hard. I get paid shoe money to make these documentaries. So when it's over, I am truly fucked. I'm at the bottom, and I'm just being as real and vulnerable as possible yeah, right man. now. I'm sure this doesn't look good for the audience, but. I mean, I'm just trying to tell everybody that like, it's not like a cry for help, like, oh, send me money in the form of a donation or a Venmo. I just like, I just want to continue making my mental illness documentary. I have 37 minutes of footage edited. It's beautiful. And I have about an hour and 10, hour and 15 minutes more footage to get. And that costs money. And I'm not going to pay those fucking bills by working at a grocery store. So I don't know, maybe you could even tell me, like I, I need advice or something, but it's just rough, man. Let me step out of the interview here and, and give you advice. When I say step out, of, I mean, step out of the agenda. I want to frame this the right way. So first of all, no, this doesn't look bad to the audience because this is the realest shit that we could put out there. Right. And that's why, that's why I'm doing this. I'm not here for rainbows and skittles as one of my buddies says i'm not here to put out all all positive all the time life is great if you follow one steps one through five here life is going to be great and you just have to understand the formula no it doesn't work like that life is not perfect life has ups and downs and the ups and downs are caused by us because we are imperfect people you know we are real human beings that are here to be happy and happiness comes at a cost. Uh, happiness to me looks different than happiness to you. And for somebody that's so, that's an empath and I'm an empath too, man. And I'll, I'll talk about it in a little while when we talk about your film. Um, for somebody that's an empath, it becomes really fucking hard to satisfy yourself while doing the stuff that you need to do to be alive, like make a living and support the people that you're with uh, and all that. It's a, it's a difficult balance. And I'll tell you that the trick is, here's the secret. There is no secret. (laughs) The trick is that it's an imperfect process and you have to keep trying and trying until you figure it out for yourself. Cause what happens is one of a few things we, Great example. We uh, interviewed a buddy of mine, Robbie Plotkin, um, a few weeks ago. Robbie was, is, I don't know if you say was or is, but he was a, uh, a pro MMA fighter. I've known Robbie for years because we came up in martial arts together um, when I was in my 20s, just taking it as a hobby, and he was badass. And and Robbie had a dream of being a pro MMA fighter, a pro kickboxer, and he won a bunch of titles as an amateur and then came out to pro, and it was fucking tough. And he had a wife to support and smart dude, had college degrees and the whole thing, couldn't get out into the real world, the business world to get a regular job because he had too much love for what he did. Now what happens is as we get older, things change for us in, in a good way, in a bad way sometimes, and... Robbie made the move where he just said, you know what, my original dream was to go to West Point and be in the Army. And he was like, 
I think 30 or, or 31 when he made the decision uh, to actually re to enlist and just fuck it. He he had gotten a divorce and things were were looking you know kind of off for him. And he said, "Fuck it, I'm going to go after my real dream." And he jumped in, and I've never seen him happier in terms of he found his path, he found his leadership. Now he had to put pro MMA fighting aside, um, either for a while or forever. And that's a decision that he made happily because he found that happiness now um, in in what he does. Is it perfect? No. I'm sure there's a part of him that still says you got to get back in that fucking ring. You're yeah. you're still fit. You still down. have it. You know. And so I don't know, man. My my journey was was really like I had to. My journey left me at, at the height of my shitheadedness, as I call it. Um, left me with this fucking huge ego that ruined my life, right? It left me in a place where I was divorced, right? I, my my uh, uh, my marriage ended and I had two little kids that I had to support. I was home in a house by myself. I was, my big career was over. It was nothing. It was the first time I ever in my life experienced an iota of depression because I really just lost everything I was. And I took it one step at a time where I was like, I need to first just focus on being the dad that I always knew I could be. And I did that and developed the most unbelievable relationship with my kids who were so tiny at the time. And and then it was, let me focus on my interpersonal relationships and rebuild those. And then it was like a few years later, all right, I'm hungry again. I want to get back out into work the right way. And so I started... Uh, this company in a really, really small way. And and I got out there and I built this and I started feeling whole for the first time ever. And I started finding who George really was because for those first 31 some odd years, I really had no clue. You know, I was trying to be all these people and I really couldn't figure out who George actually was. And then when all of that started falling into place, I don't know, man. It was like this balance came over me. Um, I always talk about this moment, you know, these this balance and these spark moments when they sort of come together. It's like it's like Neo understanding the Matrix. It's like Luke Skywalker <laughs> understanding the Force. You know what I mean? It's like it all just sort of worked, and I was like, oh shit! And, and I can't put a name on it or a description, but it just fucking worked. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, okay, this is how I have to do it. And it took me 30-something years, 30, probably after that struggle for a few years, it was like 35 years before I got into a real rhythm and was able to balance everything in my life, balance the empath that always wants to be out there helping people, balance the guy with the crazy, crazy, ridiculous drive to be successful, balance the father, the husband. I just got remarried two years ago. You know, uh, there's no answer, dude. There's there's no answer. It's just like uh, I know if you follow your heart and you try your best to be a good – I'm not saying be a good human being. I'm saying try your best to be a good human being. It, it'll just happen, you know? Yeah. All that all that for me, that financial success – and I know that's not what it's about for you. All that financial success that I was looking for all those years, I couldn't find it the right way. I had to force it in a really like a dick kind of way. And, and it never really worked out. And then all of a sudden, after I found success in my personal life and balance, that's when all of a sudden, oh, my God, I, I have a successful business now. Like, 
you know, I'm actually, I have resources. I'm able to, to do more things that make me happy now because I'm a little better financially, you know? Uh, wow. I don't know. Take it for what it's worth. but I, I think that's beautiful. I'm so glad that you, first and foremost, are a good dad, you know? Like, that's crucial. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's the most important job you'll ever have, right? Yep, absolutely. And, uh, so, I mean, but I, the key the key sentence there was, you know, find a balance in your personal life and then the rest will kind of come if, if that's sort of what you said in a nutshell because that that's something i needed to hear for sure so thank you george yeah absolutely dude absolutely um you know i was going to ask you just to kind of put a nice bow on what we were speaking about we talked about the fact that you're still struggling and do you need that struggle to keep you on top of your creative game one final question i want to ask you about that before we move on is do you fear do you ever fear success in terms of losing that creative spark? Like, do you ever feel like if I almost like if you parallel it to your skateboarding documentary about how success really and and once people started realizing how badass skateboarding was and, and obviously there were people out there that said, hey, we can make some money on this and commercialize it. But really, the commercialization of skateboarding meant that it was a success as a sport, right? Um, yeah. But with that came a price. It's not as cool anymore if everybody gives a shit about it. It's not as cool if it's on every TV channel, you know? So I guess that question is, again, like, do you fear that success will sort of tame your artistic ability and, and lose that creative spark? Well, I have two answers to that question. The first answer would be, a lack of success is for the most part all I know um, as far as financial income goes. I mean, but then again, if I look at it that way, then I'm forgetting about all the blessings that fell into my lap. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, it's only uh, if you think about in proportion to having, like I had a $70,000 a year job. I was a top director and editor of a, of a music production company and I had it for a week and a half. They fired me because I had asked, um, after a week and a half, cause I had told them that I still had some more filming to do for take a look at this heart. And they fired me on the spot cause they said I needed to be there 110% of the time and not care about anything else. Um, so I know like I got that first check after eight days of work and I was like, Holy shit, that was the easiest $1,800 I ever made in my life. You know, like I spent two years on, we are skateboarders like every like everything you said like basically undiagnosed bipolar eating foods like food stamp food and which means i didn't eat during the day when i was filming yada 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 still made x amount of dollars like i shouldn't say it on i shouldn't say it for that film but um <clears throat> sorry um okay. so like i have made i have had some financial success and i've i've lived freely for a lot of my life which is incredible but like a lot of people, and I have, and I say this with love and utmost respect, need a savings account to like basically function. And I've never had a savings account in my life. Uh, I, it's always just been zero, and uh, and truthfully, and um, so I don't know. Like, if I had a savings account, if I had fifty grand in my savings account, twenty grand in my savings account, ten grand in my savings account. Would that make me more passive as an artist? I don't think it would because I've spent the first 12 years of my filmmaking career being like having to order a cheese pizza instead of a, 
me like fucking chicken parmesan pizza because I never had the money to do that, you know? And like I've learned how to be happy with that cheese pizza. I've learned how to be happy, it's, you know, as of recent, as last six months, of being not being single and, and giving all of my love and attention to one girl. I've learned how to be happy with the father that abandoned me for eight years, you know? Like I've just – I'm learning – how to do all these things. So I feel like if somebody said, here, Ben, here's a $75,000 check, just go make your fucking mental illness documentary and make it as good as you made all your other films if they feel that way. I think I would feel an immense amount of pressure, but I think the artistic integrity would still be the same. Yeah, I, I like that that you have that mindset because as we spoke about before, even with with me coming back up, with my comeback, financial success has afforded me the opportunity to do this shit that I really care about because now you take it from a different perspective where, okay, you've been struggling, you've never had a savings account, but you really only had to take care of yourself, right? right. Um, now you put into that a wife and two kids or an, an ex-wife and two kids and a wife now. Um, and it's like there, there's that line of like I want to be true to myself I want to be happy, but then there's also like, I need to take care of these people, right? Right. Uh, and so I can't be happy if I don't have the means to take care of these people. Uh, and, and so if, if those coincide and they're in the same area, I can be happy and have the means, great. But initially that wasn't the case. But when I got to the place where I could be happy and take care of my family and do stuff like the launch cast and do stuff where I could volunteer. You know, I spend, I don't even know how many hours a week in my office working and I probably spend an equal amount of time doing the give back stuff, right? The, I'm involved with the Ronald McDonald house. I, I, I'm, I co-founded a, a nonprofit organization, uh, uh, eight years ago. And so that give back stuff, that free stuff, that feeds my soul. And I couldn't do that unless I had the success on the other side. So it's a great way to look at it, honestly. You know, it really yeah. is. Listening to the wise old man that you are, I, I appreciate it. Thanks, man. You, that's how you come off, and that's probably because you genuinely are like that, you know, just a wise, wiser and older than me, you know? So I love learning from people like you. I appreciate it, man. It's uh, it's just experience. That That's all it is. It's, it's that I've – and when I say experience, it's that I've experienced the bad side of it, and I don't want other people to have to fall into the same traps that I did or experience the things that I did because it was fucking painful, man. I had yeah. a, quite a – you get it, man. You've been there. I've had a quite a painful few years. But to experience those painful years and then have them lead to the most joyous years of my life, wouldn't trade it for the world. You know, I needed that struggle. Talk to me about – we're going to go more on the artistic side of what you're trying to accomplish with these films, right? Talk to me about – the goal in what you do. You have said that I read in an interview that you said you need to make something original. I think this was in, in reference to skateboarding. I think you said like, I don't want to just make a skateboarding movie. I always want to make something that's original. What's that yeah. journey been like for you to keep that originality in your filmmaking? Wow. Um, I don't know if I've ever gotten such a difficult question in my life, which is a good, which is a good sign. Um, geez. Um, 
you know, if you look at my films, my four feature length documentaries, and then the new one that I have coming sometime in a theater near you and on Mars when it happens, um, I guess you can say that like, I don't know, man, like maybe like maybe some people consider me like some sort of anomaly, you know, like some sort of weird dude that just like thinks a little bit differently. Maybe that's just like the culmination of like who my parents are and my diagnosis is and and my heart and all these things. But I don't know, like when I was 18, I was just like I was in I was at the School of Visual Arts every 18 year old classmate wanted to be, no, didn't want to be. They already thought they were Steven Spielberg. And so I, I was already like, I'm not going to follow that route. I don't want to be, I, I'm, I may be narcissistic, but I'm not delusional quite yet. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I just said to myself, like skateboarding is the closest thing to my heart. It's the, it's the furthest thing away from being Steven Spielberg. And, if I combined what I saw with Manny Kirschheimer's work, my, my professor from SVA, and I, and, and I combined that with uh, skateboarding, um, I could make something original. And with Hardchild, like, I was contact, I, I, no, actually I contacted them, but I saw, you know, a posting on Transworld Skateboarding about it, and I was like, Autism and skateboarding, that's also never been covered. Mm -hmm. But I don't like, and, and you know, it's not, you know, adaptive sports is, is pretty much, maybe ESPN has done some stuff on that. I can't prove that that's complete original film, but, you know, whatever, I, I did that too. And then take a look at this heart. The reason why I say I want to be remembered by it and all this stuff is because it truly is, I mean, it's an absurdly unique film. And I can say that with, I'll try to say that with humility. It probably doesn't sound humble, but you know, which I'm very self-conscious about because I really just don't want to be arrogant. But I just feel like I made something that was so fucking taboo, so under the radar, and most importantly, very most importantly, the people who are affected by disability, whether it's someone who has a disability or whether it's someone who's in love with someone who has a disability or whether it's someone's family member to someone who has a disability, they will say that this is so pushed under the rug and so taboo that even doctors will approach them saying, I didn't know you need love. I didn't know you have sex, which is fucked up, um, which is absurd. So the fact that I made a film, which is called Take a Look at This Heart, that is about that very thing. Maybe maybe somebody in the spinal cord injury unit, because of my film that you know is original, will be able to approach a doctor and say, you know what, why don't you watch this, and then you can understand and get a better understanding of what the fuck is going on through my head and my heart right now. Because I'm in a spinal cord injury unit, and I feel like I'm never going to have sex again. I'm never going to be loved again. So, you know, it's just if you were me and you had a choice to make a film that everybody else wants to make or, and you know, you're scrounging for money just to make the next Michael Bay film. Like while I respect that, it's never been me. Yeah. And I've just maybe like, I, I know some, 
egotistical professional skateboarder said this in a documentary one time, but like it took that kind of ego and arrogance to be so original. Like it's just, you have to say fuck the world in some respects when you're 18 years old and you say, I'm going to make a, a film that's original because everybody's telling you that like, oh, everything's already been done. I'm just like, dude, like, I don't want to hear that. Like, why are you telling me that? You know, yeah. it's no different than when my directing professors told the whole class, you guys have a better chance of becoming NBA players than you do directors. I was like, dude, like, fuck you. Yeah. Like, I can become a director if I just, I don't know what it's going to take, but I'm going to find out if it's the last thing I do. Yeah. So, you know, I guess the whole originality thing, I, I personally feel like it's just part of like, the culmination of a genetic makeup and the pills that I take, my friend. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. So after what would much later be your most financially successful film, Tin Soldiers, featuring four-time Paralympic gold medalist Elena Nichols, you were completely over filmmaking. And you mentioned the story before a little bit. It wasn't until six months later that a quadriplegic man spoon-fed you a new idea to document love and sexuality in the disabled community that you found yourself on your friend's couch that you were crashing on saying, I have to believe that this is going to work because I have nothing left to lose. And then you raised a total of $55,000. Uh, go fund me that. Uh I go funded me 10.5 K and then the rest came from investors and sponsors. Gotcha. So you raised a total of $55,000 to turn what was a caterpillar of an idea into a beautiful butterfly that was released in 2019 called take a look at this heart. Now I'm going to give the, the uh, description of take a look at this heart real quick. So it's a film about love, sexuality, and the human bond within the disabled community, a journey into the lives of 17 very unique people, some with disabilities and the partners who love them, others struggling to get by in a world that seems too often to overlook them. In exploring the confidence and unconditional love that these humans have for themselves and each other, uh, you may begin to question your own notions on life, love, and what it means to really feel in every sense of the word. Now, I watched this yesterday, man, as I mentioned before. It was so powerful to me for a number of reasons. It was really beautiful, um, and we have to remember that this isn't just a story that's being told on film. These are real people. We're not just generalizing diseases in terms of like, hey, it affects this mass of people. These were these were actual people and we were listening to their stories. We were seeing their tears, their laughter, their gut-wrenching stories, some of them. And for me, it it hurt, man. You know, it, it's it's gotta be tough on you to make films like this. You've made uh, Tin Man about adaptive sports. You've made uh, skateboarding, which is so close to your heart. You've made uh, take a look at this heart uh, about love in the disabled community. You're making your your new film, I Do Not Blame Myself, which we'll we'll talk about a little bit more later. But you know, for me as an empath watching this, in dude, in the first five minutes, I'm in like I'm in tears on the couch and I'm holding back like ugly tears as my wife is watching me and I'm like I I can't fucking I I can't take the pain in this world. It's so hard yeah. for me to watch so many people in pain and I get those overwhelming bursts of agony sometimes because of that. I can't even fucking imagine what it is to immerse yourself in this day in and day out when you're making these films. How 
tough is this? Not just on the physical Ben Duffy, on the soul, man. How much does this hurt doing this stuff? Um, maybe so much so that I don't even realize how much it hurts. Maybe, um, maybe it really does come back to my mom and like nothing will ever amount to that kind of pain that I experienced with her growing up with me, me growing up with a mom that has internal horn cell disease. Maybe I was numb to like when I talked to a quadriplegic or a pure person with cerebral palsy that feels like they're never going to be loved. I don't know. Maybe it's some things just never get old, never get old. And that's just how it goes. And like the pain that I feel with my mom, um, will always help me to sort of transform the pain that I feel for these people into beauty because I don't think I know for a fact actually that they don't want me to feel sorry for them or, or be in pain because of them. It's just what I did was I asked for the most vulnerable side to them, which, you know, does come through as a very painful explanation of what they're going through. But as you saw in the film, it was very balanced out with quotes like, I'm not in love with a woman in a wheelchair, I'm, uh, or I'm in love with an amazing woman who happens to be in a chair. Yeah. Or a quote like, that wasn't verbatim. Um, or a quote like, you know, when I'm with the right person, I don't feel like I'm paralyzed. It was balanced out with that kind of thing. So it was balanced out with a, it's a, it's a, it's truly a roller coaster of a film, right? I mean, like, it's just, there's so much pain, but there's so much fucking beauty in that film that like, it makes your heart want to pop just because it makes you want to cry for the, like cry sadness and cry tears of joy. Yeah. And uh, yeah. maybe that's what I was doing when I was making it. I was, I was using that pain that I felt from one answer and trying to transform it into something beautiful with a more positive answer from the next question. It's so it's tough to manage what that feeling is like for me as a, as a, you know, as a servant leader, as somebody that tries to help people, I do have to recenter myself once in a while. I have to, I have to sort of look at myself and, and acknowledge like, Hey, I want to help. I want to give people a voice. I want to help everyone, but that's just not possible. Like, so I have to help people that I can, you know, as, as I experience things and people that cross, cross my path. But, um, you know, uh, sort of managing that expectation for myself is what helps me get through that. Um, and so I, I, I hope for you that, being in this genre of, of documentary filmmaking, um, that you look at that and, and try and manage that. Cause that's heavy, man. It's heavy. It's heavy shit. It, uh, uh, I look at it almost as, uh, one of my favorite shows is law and order as for you. It's my guilty pleasure. I've been watching it forever, but you know, you hear the stories of people that work in the special victims units and they deal with the most horrific shit day in and day out. And it, it affects them, you know, and sort of making sure that you're managing that in your own personal life and keeping that separate is, is a big part of the balance, uh, as a servant leader, you know, um, easier said than done. Yes, right? absolutely. Easier said than done because the reflex is always to help and, and, and to get out there. And so you, you have to fight yourself sometimes on that. I guess uh, there, there's a way we can 
pivot now into something we were talking about before and sort of tie this in. Dealing with with this kind of content on a daily basis and and having the struggles that you've gone through. You know, you've you've said that you suffer from mental illness, you are in recovery from substance abuse, right? What what kind of role has mental illness played in your life in terms of everything, in terms of your art form, in terms of the type of content you deal with on a daily basis, um, in terms of substance abuse, you know, talk about that a little bit. Oh, shit. Um, uh, if you're comfortable, uh, obviously, if you're comfortable. No, of course I'm comfortable. I'm just, it's like, uh, it's like it, the questions are so fucking good and so diligent that it's like, I'm like, I feel like I'm running on a treadmill, emotional treadmill at high speed. I'm um, sorry, man. They, like, let me, let me tell free, you while, free. while you think of that answer, let me, let me just tell people why we're doing this. You know, the, the goal of this thing, and I've said this almost every single episode, the goal of this thing is to help people understand unconventional leadership. I hope you guys see a real person here with Ben. This is a real fucking human being that's going through shit and has had some successes and some failures and is experiencing the roller coaster of life as we all do. Um, if you can see this and pull some semblance of this unconventional journey, because he is a leader and he's doing some incredible shit that, you know, 99% of the people on this world couldn't do. Um, while going through these struggles, it should really fucking show you that you can do it too. You know, like that's what I'm hoping for with the audience is for them to look at this and say, shit, I've gone through that. And I, I could, maybe I could do that. That's a passion of mine. Or I have a passion, but I'm going through what Ben's going through. Maybe I can get through these issues and, and do it. So that's why we're doing this. So I appreciate, first of all, you diving in so deep with me because it's it's special and it's important to what we're trying to do here. This isn't a show just to be a show. I never yeah. wanted to get on here just to say, hey, I have a podcast now, you know? This is a show to help people. Well, I'm honored. Maybe let's talk about, let's take away the the aspect of the content you deal with in your documentaries. Let's just talk about uh, mental illness uh, and the role that it's played in your life. Okay. Jeez, um, all right. Mental illness, you know, I landed at LAX when I was 18 years old, May 14th, 2008. And the minute I got off the plane, I said, like, the amount of stress that I felt was so insurmountable because I had dropped out of school. I had nowhere to live. I might I might be moving in with my mom's boyfriend's ex-wife. And I was like, Fuck. And I moved out there luckily with my best friend, Mike Sassano, who works on all my films with me. Um, and, uh, you know, he noticed something really wrong with me when I was like, he's like, what do you think, you're God? And I was like, yeah, I do. And what that was was undiagnosed bipolar disorder and psychosis. Um, I would... Uh, you know, my, my mom came to visit me one time when I was 19, I was truly psychotic and I'm not trying to be cute when I say that I have ongoing, still to this day, I take Abilify for ongoing treated psychosis. Okay. And, uh, I was walking around in my underwear, repeating the same thing. 
probably for probably for 45 minutes just pacing around the house in my underwear repeating the same thing for 45 minutes i would skate down wilshire boulevard or san vincente boulevard in la with um thinking that i was a leader of a new paradigm like it was really bad you know undiagnosed psychosis is nothing to be trifled with it's fucked up man yeah and, and um bless my mom's heart she i think she ignored my in symptoms and she didn't put me in the hospital, which I desperately needed to be in. You want to talk about being a fucking leader? Like, I'd go to bed, I'd wake up, and I'd call a professional skateboarder, okay? Because if I didn't do that, I'd be pacing around the house for another 45 minutes of my underwear talking to myself. I was balancing psychosis with professionalism, and uh, it was, like, still to this day, like, it just chokes me up a little bit to talk about it because it was like, it was so painful. Um, yeah, it was really painful. And, uh, I, uh, it's like ingrained in my soul that like, I don't know, like maybe how the fuck did I do that? You know? Yeah. And like, how did I do that in the sense where how, you know, I, I finally saw a therapist when I was 22 and she said, your resilience is stunning and I'm, and I'm honestly, I'm surprised you're still alive, you know? And that hit me. It didn't even hit me that hard at the time, but it hits me hard now because I think she's right. Like, you know, I think my saving grace back in those days when I was walking around in my underwear pacing for 45 minutes was that I wasn't drinking somehow, maybe because I couldn't afford it. Cause I was, cause you couldn't buy alcohol as food stamps. Um, and I just maybe wasn't that interested at the time, but you know, mental illness transcended or not transcended. It turned me into an alcoholic because once I finished, we are skateboarders and I was dating this fucking girl who was physically abusive. And, you know, I was 21, like I was just collecting checks from we are skateboarders and partying and partying and partying, smoking weed, all that shit. So eventually I was, 25 26 years old and i couldn't make it past 4 30 p.m without um you know having a pint of gin mm. and uh on my balcony chain smoking cigarettes and uh that's not what we call a leader that's what we call a fucking loser not that i like to use that word lightly because i don't believe anybody's a loser but i'll say that about myself because i had lost something you know i lost my wits i lost my ability to persevere and uh it was just uh, sometimes you got to get it when the going's good. And when I was 19, I should have been hospitalized, and that's all there's to it. Yeah. And when I was when I was finally hospitalized at 23, and they told me that I was psychotic and I had bipolar disorder, it was a true identity crisis. And all I can do to numb that crisis was to drink um, and party. You know what I mean by partying. Yeah. Man. And uh, yep. So here I am one year out of rehab and I've never felt so good in my life. Um, as far as my stability goes, I still struggle of course, like immensely, but thanks to a loving relationship with my dad and thanks to a girl who loves me 
so unconditionally. Happy Valentine's Day, Amelia. <laughs> uh, she'll probably never watch read watch us because she probably doesn't want to give me that credit. But I do love you to death, and uh, she's just so fucking good to me, and it helps me to love myself more. You know, it helps me to say I don't need to drink. It helps me to say I, you know, I want to be fully present for her. I want to be. I want to reciprocate the love and the the love that I was reminded that was ex- that exists in other people towards me that I found in rehab. Like those people loved me so much, and uh, I truly was at a place where my mental illness and my alcoholism one hundred thousand percent depleted any kind of love that I felt for myself, and um, you know, take a look at this heart fucked me up. I'll just be honest. I never said this out loud to anybody, but it did fuck me up. It fucked me up because I couldn't handle um, just like I believed I made something so good and I was just like I was whether it was the pinnacle of my life on that cliff at the end of Port, in Puerto Rico at the end of the film, helping Grachel out to the edge of the cliff, taking her out of her wheelchair. I mean, I've never experienced something so beautiful than that. And as a person with bipolar disorder, you search for highs. And and I that was November, two thousand. that was Thanksgiving 2017 mm. when I took her child out to that, to that cliff. And I wanna, I've been searching for that feeling ever since, you know? I've been searching for that, that pinnacle of life that I felt that in that moment. And uh, I never found it. Maybe sometimes, like when my girlfriend tells me she loves me, I can feel it. Or when my dad like tells me he loves me, like I can feel that, but just, just for a moment, but it fucked me up because I, it brought me to such a place of mania. The, the feedback and the success and the, the love that I was getting for take a look at this heart that I just kind of felt like the rest of my life was, I'll never be able to amount to anything like that again. And I guess that weighed out in on me a lot. Um, I'm really not trying to be dramatic. This is just my experience and nobody can take that away from me. Um, alcoholism is like, I don't preach sobriety, but I do preach to myself that it dragged me into the dirt six feet deep pretty much metaphorically speaking and uh i'm still climbing out of that hole yeah and uh yeah man yeah. it's uh just a lot there but no first of all thank you for for sharing that um you, you mentioned to me before and i want to give a shout real quick to the person that introduced us which is estella lugo an incredible human being my friend since eighth seventh or eighth grade i think eighth grade <laughs> Um, I've known Estella for so many years. Estella is affected by CMT, Charcot Marie Tooth disease, um, the biggest disease you've never heard of. And uh, she works for the Hereditary Neuropathy Foundation, doing incredible work with them. And I actually was exposed to your film last year and wasn't able to make the screening because I think I had a speaking engagement because the HNF, I think, worked with you to do a screening at FIT in Manhattan. Um, you mentioned to me earlier that you didn't make it because you were in rehab at the time. Yeah. And so uh, I guess coming off this experience was super heavy for you, but I'm, I'm happy that you, you know, 
you got the help that you needed and um I'm happy you're in such a good place right now. I'm happy you're in a great relationship because for me, dude, um, meeting my wife, Colleen, uh, changed me, man, just completely changed me. And uh, I couldn't do the things I do without her. So I'm, I'm so happy for you. Ooh, the Big Talk Academy, our newest sponsor. Guys, you have a story to tell. You want to make an impact and damn it, you are ready for more. I know all about this journey. You see yourself on that big stage, so what are you waiting for? I know you're ready to take that big stage and you are probably freaking out about how to do it, but relax, the launch dad's about to tell you how to do it. And if I'm the launch dad, then this lady right here that I'm gonna talk about has got to be the big talk mama because she has helped to bring to life more talks on big stages that you could possibly imagine. Award-winning director, speaker coach, and producer, Trisha Brooke, she founded the Big Talk Academy and she founded it for you. This is a 12-week virtual certification program and she's gonna teach you how to identify your big idea, craft your big talk, and learn to pitch like a boss. She and the other members are gonna support you along the way and I know all about this community, guys. It's incredible and they're gonna help you realize your dream of becoming a sought after speaker. In Trisha's community, you might be on the big stage by yourself, but you are never alone. Group calls twice a month. You can ask Trisha anything and get the support that you need to take things to the next level. Guys, the Big Talk Academy, it's waiting for you and so are your big stages. Let's do it. I wanna mention before we move on to the big three, uh, real quick, I wanna mention, I do not blame myself. This is the film that you're currently working on. The theme of this documentary is pulling something from within you that you didn't know that you had so that you can find the love for yourself that was missing for so long in order to heal with a mental illness. Uh, the only way we're ever going to learn about mental illness is if we can relate it to ourselves. I love that, man. Um, you've gone in depth talking about mental illness, so we don't really need to chime in anymore on that, but I wanna make people aware that this film will come out. Uh, I know you're gonna complete this thing, man. Uh, and you and I will talk privately, um, too. I wanna hook you up with a few people um, that can get you some some more exposure and hopefully help you in con completing that project. So yeah, I, I, I'm I'm excited for you, for, for what's to come. I, I look forward to, to watching you grow in your career as a filmmaker and a documentarian because you're putting out some incredible stuff, man. So uh, first of all, I wanna thank you for putting your heart out there for all of us because I know it's a, it takes a lot out of you. It's a big drain, I get it. Yeah. It's, 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 sincerely, it's, it's a sincere pleasure and a sincere honor to do so. Words of a, a true servant leader, honestly, it really is. What's next right now? Is it just completing this film? Is that? That's all you're focused on, I'm guessing, right? Yeah, I mean, as far as my film career goes, for sure, it's the only thing I want to do in the world. Yeah, I love that. All right, guys, let's move on to the big three. The big three from the launch cast. You know what that is. That is, we're going to ask Ben a few special things here, and he's going to throw us his, his top three for all of these. You ready? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Give me your top three favorite films of all time. Um, Into the Wild, Any Given Sunday, and Annie Hall. Good. Any Given Sunday is one of my favorites, too. It's in my top ten, I think. Yeah. Uh, how about top three documentarians? Um, I don't know his last name because it's a very long Swedish last name, but Malik something, the guy who made Searching for Sugar Man, 
Oh, unfortunately committed suicide. Um, uh, Stacy Peralta and it's so funny. I barely ever watch documentaries. I just make them, but, uh, I don't know the guy who directed man on wire is a true genius. I'll give him that. Cool. All right. Uh, what about, give me a top three achievements. Oh boy. Um, Given everything I said about the time where I was making We Are Skateboarders, We Are Skateboarders is an achievement. Um, this is going to sound so cheesy and so stupid, but buying my girlfriend the bouquet of flowers that I did and, and spending more than half of my bank account on them to do so because I felt like she had been asking me for a flower, to pick a flower for her for six months, and I never did. So just swallowing my pride and actually just doing something to make somebody else feel that fulfillment that they desire from somebody that they love was one of them. And then, um, healing the relationship with my father. Okay. Um, one more on the big three, top three favorite feelings in the world. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, when I'm sitting on the couch, I mentioned this last week in our interview. When I'm sitting on the couch with my kids watching TV, they're a little older now. They're 11 and 9, so I don't get the cuddles I used to. But um, once in a while, when they're really, really tired and we're watching a movie and I get a head on the shoulder sitting there for a little while, it's probably one of my favorite feelings in the world. So give me your top three favorite feelings in the world. Uh, My dad has a home winery. So helping him with his home winery is one of the best feelings in the world. Um, when I taught my girlfriend how to drop in on a skateboard on a quarter pipe, that was one of the best feelings in the world. And um, being a being an uncle, awesome to my awesome. to my little nephew Logan. Love it. I have a quote I want to leave you with before we wrap up. I was looking for when in doing my research yesterday, I was looking at some interesting stuff about documentaries, and I saw this great quote from Alfred Hitchcock about documentaries. It says. In feature films, the director is God. In documentary films, God is the director. What does that mean to you? I think that means that they have to play God because you have to have all the fucking answers, man. And like, you have to have all the answers like every second of the way. It has to be so innate and answer that 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 problem solving and that like that coming up with the answer has to be so innate and so um fucking like intuitive that you have to be just like incorrigible you know because you're so on point and it makes people treat you like god because you like you are steering the titanic to safety pretty much when you're making a film like you are like everybody is looking at you to be the fucking man. And I certainly would never consider myself a God just because I'm making films, but, um, you know, and unfortunately maybe some directors do, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's why. All right, guys, real quick, we're going to do our spark moment of the week. Today's spark moment, guys, is, of course, since it's Valentine's Day and we're recording, it is centered around love. Yoda won for me. Gotta love that. Given to me by my wonderful wife. Um, What a heavy, incredible interview with Ben Duffy this has been. Specifically, 
talking about the love that Ben now has in his life um, and how it's helped to sort of transform him through his recovery, through his mental illness, through his his struggles, and through his professional career. Um, man, s- surrounding yourself with not just in a loving relationship, an intimate relationship, but surrounding yourself with the right tribe, the people that you love that will help to lift you, it is everything. Um, bringing that positivity into your life, finding that significant other that is going to complete you rather than uh, yeah i'm trying to i'm trying to find the right words for this but uh, a lot of relationships are competitive a lot of relationships are unhealthy in certain ways but when you complete each other when you support each other what an important thing it is to our growth and so i'm going to make this one short and sweet love each other find those right people it is imperative uh, to our success internally and externally um, to surround ourselves with that positivity and the right people, the people that will be part of that tribe and will help you build that tribe. So that's our spark moment of the week, guys. Guys, thank you for joining us this week on the LaunchCast. This has been George Andriopoulos with Ben Duffy. Ben, my honor to have you on uh, this week. Guys, check out this episode Monday. All the links to all the documentaries are going to be in the show notes. We drop Monday morning, 6 a.m. Eastern time. Thanks for joining us, guys. Launch sequence terminated. Into the black hole. Thanks for listening to the LaunchCast today. Please make sure to subscribe to this feed wherever podcasts are available. Follow me, George Andriopoulos, at Launchpad CEO on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And make sure to visit our website, guys, thelaunchcast.com. Looking forward to the next episode. See you soon, guys.